Hi, everybody. This is Tracy, and I'm delighted you've joined me for this episode of Good Life Stories. I created this podcast because I believe we are all seeking connection, and what better way to do that than through story? So get ready. These stories are meant to suck you in. Welcome to Good Life Stories. So today on Good Life Stories, I bring to you Erin Jones. She is an author, educator, and has been inspiring people for a long time. And she told me her superpower is seeing the beauty and brilliance in people, especially children. As an educator, she's had a special opportunity to get to do that on a regular basis. And as a speaker and a coach, she's done that too. Please welcome to my show, Erin Jones. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Good Life Stories. Tonight, I have the honor of having Erin Jones on my podcast. She is someone who I was telling I have had kind of a crush on for like six years because I just think what she's doing is so amazing. Um, she's a 30-year career educator and has worked in almost every space in education from teacher to instructional coach to state and school administrator. She has earned awards as a world language teacher, the Washington Milken Educator of the Year, and Champion of Change from the Obama White House. She's a mother of three adult children and a wife of 28 years to James, who is a high school teacher and head football coach. Is he a coach around here in Seattle? We live in Lacey, right near the state capital, and he's a head coach here. Nice. Nice. Mm -hmm. So when Erin and I met about six years ago, I just showed her a picture of when we first met. Um, But I asked her on today because she's really inspired me for a very long time. And so when I asked her, you know, what three life stories she might like to chat about, um, when I was looking at them, I was instantly fascinated because the first one you mentioned was meeting Mrs. Sadat, the wife of Anwar Sadat, when you were nine. Where in the world were you? (laughs) So I had the incredible gift of attending the American School of The Hague, which is not technically the United Nations School, but it serves all the non-British leaders at the United Nations. So all of the countries that were not, where their children were not attending the British school, their children attended our school. So all the ambassadors' children from places like Peru and Brazil and Lebanon and Palestine and Israel, all of those children attended my wow. school, as well as all of the oil companies' children. Um, so mm-hmm. Shell, um, Conoco, all of them attended yeah. my school too. So, you know, I went from being a little adopted, transracially adopted kid in Minnesota to the Hague, the Netherlands. And the year I was nine years old, fourth grade, my best friend was Yael, and she was the Israeli ambassador's daughter. Yeah. And I don't know why I was taken by her, but I loved Yael. And of course, in 1980, that was, there was a lot of conflict between Israel and Palestine, much like there is right now. And 
I just remember hearing stories from her. Of course, this is before the internet existed. So, right. you know, she would get news from her father in the newspaper, but, you know, you didn't get news, but every two or three weeks. So right. if there was um, some sort of suicide bombing or some sort of shooting, right. she would not know for sure how her family had been impacted for days or weeks sometimes. And oh. I just remember as a little girl being heartbroken for her. Yeah. But I was also drawn for some reason, and I, I really cannot explain this to you. I was drawn by Jewish culture. And yeah. so I read every book that I could that year by Jewish authors. So Chaim Potok, I wanted to go to yeshiva, even yeah. though it was just for boys. Yep. I began to teach myself to speak Hebrew. And then in November or December of 1980, my parents dragged me to a PTA meeting and I discovered at that PTA meeting that the Palestinian ambassador's kid was also in our school. And so here I am, the best friend of the Israeli ambassador's daughter, but suddenly realizing that this other young man is also in our school and the dads were coming to PTA meetings together to talk about the education of their children. Yeah. And I had a revelation that year that if the dads could come and talk about education, then somebody must be able to get them together to talk about peace. And I decided who better than me to do that. So I began to learn not only Hebrew, but also Arabic. And I decided as a nine-year-old kid, I really want to bring peace to the Middle East. And we would get a visit from Mrs. Sadat a couple months later. Her country, Egypt, was in the middle of a civil war. And she had a vision of doing assemblies for small children and really encouraging small children to commit to peace, to end war around the world. And she wanted to do a trial run of her assembly. And so she brought her friend, John Denver, to my school and he sang with our choir. And so I got to sing with John Denver, I think, leaving on a jet plane and some others. I can't remember the other song. And then, yeah. And then we got to hear Mrs. Sadat speak. And then she had asked the fourth grade teachers who were the three children most likely to change the world. Um, and invited myself and two other children to have lunch with her and John Denver. And so here I am, this nine-year-old transracially adopted kid in the Netherlands, sitting at a table with John Denver and Mrs. Sadat. <laughs> she asked us that day, um, how are you going to change the world? And, you know, I've taught fourth grade since then. And yeah. most fourth graders now are, are like playing video games and making TikTok videos and yeah. being silly. I immediately said, I'm going to solve the Middle East crisis. Like I'm learning to speak Arabic and Hebrew and someday I'm going to solve their, their, I'm going to end their war. And yeah. she pointed at me that day and told me I was a world changer. And she just, she just it, it informed me that day, just pointed her finger and said, oh. you, Aaron, are a world changer. And I believed her that day. And that, that day would change my life. I stepped into this identity of world changer as a nine-year-old kid. I love it. How amazing. You know, the, yeah. the power of one thing, you know. And being... the power of the words of the words of adults yeah. and the lives of young people, which is yes. why, you know, as an educator and a mother, I know that my words matter because they mattered for me as a little girl. And so I get to use my words now to speak that kind of life into young people. Yeah. Wow. What an amazing story. Thank you. I love, Mm -hmm. I love that. I can just see you sitting at that table 
you know, it's like, I feel like, and like, I, I almost want to know what you ate for lunch. You know, <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember anything else about that day. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's all right. That's the piece that came with you. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. That is pretty yeah. amazing. Oh my gosh. I love that. I'm just thinking about that moment for you and knowing, you know, when we all think back to our childhoods of the person who said something that mattered, you know, and I, yeah. and I, like to hope because I'm a perpetual optimist that, you know, it was the good thing that was spoken. Yeah. You know, she just passed away last summer and I know she spent a lifetime really seeking out peace. In fact, her husband would end up being assassinated just months after she came to my school, but she continued the work anyway. I think about this moment in our nation's history when there's so much violence. Yeah we have to keep going with us with the words of peace. We have to keep yes. going fighting for peace. And, and I think, you know, that's a thing kids ask me all the time and you've experienced so much challenge and so much failure and so much hurt in your life. How do you keep going? I'm like, my why is so big. Yeah. And that when you have a president's wife tell you you're a world changer, man, that just keeps you going. Even when it feels like everything's falling apart, you have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. That is for sure. Okay. So I want to move on to your next one. So that your second good life story you wanted to talk about was being invited to try out for two different WNBA teams at the age of 28. So (laughs) which ones? And Like, where were you at the time? Like, what else was going on in your life? That's so exciting. So that's a crazy story. So I grew up playing basketball, but knowing that I would never play professional because there was no professional league at the time. I was a child. I'll be 51 next Friday. And so we didn't have professional. So in my mind, I had these dreams of playing in the NBA or playing for the national team. That was the only thing that you could really dream for as a girl in the seventies and eighties, but totally I played college basketball. And then the year that I graduated from college, they started the WNBA, but I got pregnant. And so I knew immediately this is not going to happen. Forget that dream, but I kept playing basketball. So I played in women's leagues. I played in men's leagues and I, I actually played until the day before I delivered each of my children. And then I started playing again when they were three weeks old. And so I just kept playing Well, we were living in South Bend, Indiana for a while. Then we moved to Columbus, Ohio. I had my second kid. So they were, we moved to Washington State when they were um, three months old and a year. No, he, he, they're two years apart. So two years and a little bit, two years and six months old, and then three months old when we moved to Washington State. And, I was playing in men's leagues pretty much right away here and, but never with any aspiration for playing professional because I had little kids and it just didn't seem like it was in the cards and you don't typically start a professional career after you're 21 or 22. So I kind of had forgotten about that dream, but I kept playing basketball because I loved the game. And um, when I was 27, my sister-in-law brought her 26. My sister-in-law brought her daughter over. My sister-in-law had been a member of the Hilltop Crips in Tacoma, large Mm. black, predominantly black gang. Her Mm. husband was a Hilltop Crip. She had tried to get out of the gang, but was really struggling with many of the lifestyle 
issues that go with gangs, with addiction, yeah. alcohol, drugs. Her husband had been involved in one of the first drive-by shootings in our state, and he was serving 27 years in a prison. And we had just moved to Washington State. My boys were one in three, and she needed someone to watch her kid because she knew she wasn't in the right frame of mind to be a mom. Um, She needed to go get clean, and she knew I was a stay-at-home mom, and so she brought her daughter over and said, I got to get clean I can't do this by myself, but I also can't raise this little girl. Can you just keep her for a while? And, and it did. And, um, my boys knew how to do basketball because I'd been playing since they were three weeks old. So they knew how to just sit and watch and cheer. And and my, my oldest son was almost four at the time. And he, (laughs) he's so funny. He's still this way at 27, but he would run up and down the sidelines and tell me when to shoot. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> he was my, he was my forever, he's my forever coach, but he was such a big cheerleader. Our daughter, who was our niece then, didn't yeah. know how to do basketball. And in fact, her mother at times would tell her she was going to the bathroom and then leave her locked in the house oh. for sometimes hours at a time, sometimes days at a time. And so every time I'd leave the bench and go into a game, she thought I was leaving her. And she would just scream bloody murder. And I knew immediately I need to take a year off of basketball because I, yeah. this little girl just can't handle this. She can't, she needs somebody that full time. Yeah. And right now it's yeah. traumatic for her to watch me leave the sidelines and get into a game. And she deserves to have somebody who can be full time. And so yep. even though I love the game of basketball, I knew I needed to take a year off and I took, um, about seven months off. And then her, her mom came to get her was somewhat clean. I mean, she was living a better life, but mom came to get her and I started playing again and about, I had been playing maybe for a couple of weeks. Then I got a phone call one day and it was the Seattle storm office. That's what they said on the phone. Hey, Aaron yeah. Jones, the yeah. Seattle storm. I was like, okay, why are you calling me? And they said, well, we have an open tryout and we hear you're a ball player and we'd like to invite you to try out. Wow. Now, what I should have said is I'm about to be 28. I have little <laughs> kids at home and I have not really touched a basketball or run in a long time, right. but that's not what I said. I said, when are tryouts? And the lady said on the other side of the phone, um, three months. And I said, I'll be there. <laughs> and I hung up the phone and I thought, what the heck was I thinking? Like, why what did I, did I think? <laughs> yeah. Why did I think I could try out? Um, long story short, I would end up a professional coach would end up seeing me at a YMCA. I was training myself and the YMCA manager called this coach who was a friend of his and said, there's this lady in the gym. She's a pastor's wife. They don't have money. She's got little kids at home. She needs a coach. She needs some support. Would you come? And this guy said, well, I'm only going to support her if she's the real deal. And so he came and watched me for an hour from, I didn't know he was there. Yeah, He was watching me from the office and, came out onto the court after about an hour and said, Hey, I'd love to be your free coach. If you would take me, I've got three other women that are trying out. You could come train with us. We'll get you a professional weightlifting coach. I was like, Oh yeah, sure. (laughs) Yes. And so I became part of this little team. Well, the first day that I was officially on his team, he took me to a weightlifting, a professional coach, there's uh, these other young women and then me. So I'm the old lady on the, on the little right. crew. 
I take off my sweats and this, this professional coach takes one look at me and says, I'm not training her though. She's too old. I don't tell this story very often, but um, I'll never forget this. We're at this gym in Northeast Tacoma and he takes one look at my body and says, you're weak and there's no way I can get you ready in the amount of time that it's going to take. And I won't, I'm not going to put my name on that body. And he sent me away. So the other ladies got to train with him. I was not allowed to train with him. And I remember that day because I went out, I cried a little bit and then I went out into the parking lot and I started running sprints in the parking lot. I ran sprints the entire hour and a half that they were training. I, on my own, went out and ran sprints. And I just was determined. Yeah. I was more determined at this point. Like Like now you're like, okay, yeah, yeah. bring it. Oh yeah, you're not not (laughs) going to tell me what I can't do. Needless to say, I would get to my, this coach would end up, because of our work ethic, he would get us a second tryout too. So I didn't just get to try out for the Seattle Storm. I also got a tryout for the Portland Fire. And I remember mm-hmm. the weightlifting coach showed up at the storm tryout because he had these other women that were on our team that he'd been supporting and he wanted to support them. So he showed up and he took one look at my body and apologized. He said, I really did not expect you to be able to get yourself in the kind of shape. And I, I see you and I'm really sorry for how I treated you. And that for me was, that meant so much for him to go out of his way to apologize own your mistakes. That, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Really powerful. But that first tryout for the Seattle storm, I love the storm, but the first tryout was a sham. It was yeah. actually a sham. The real tryout was happening the next day, but this was a tryout where they were hoping to get a bunch of women to sign up for season tickets. <laughs> and how I found out about this, um, because I'm older, I was older than everybody. Well, right. I was older than most of the people there. I, I just was paying attention. I was watching body language of coaches and stuff. And I watched a couple of coaches go outside and I knew the head coach was not there. And that was, I had red (laughs) flags going off in my head. And I, I went outside because I watched a couple of coaches go outside and I overheard them say, Hey, um, head coach is not coming until the very last 20 minutes. And let's just do the rest of this for the day. And yeah, this is not a story that I tell very often, but we they would end up breaking us into small teams where we scrimmaged against each other and because i knew this was not a real tryout i actually had yeah. a friend who'd been invited to the next day tryout um she had just graduated from UW. she was 21 yeah. years old yeah i decided to be coach on the sidelines for the because they had us actually subbing ourselves in and right. what i knew is if you're going to sub yourself in and you actually think you have a shot you're not coming out you're not going to let any right. so i said i'm actually not going to play I'm going to play the role of coach and sub people in. And so that's what I did. I kind of gave up the last yeah. hour of tryouts to just be that, like manage yeah. the, the court. Help everybody else. Well, right. So we ended up, we had a tryout on Friday in Seattle. And then of course, anyone from Seattle listening, imagine driving from Seattle to Portland on a Friday night. So oh. our next tryout was in Portland on Saturday morning. So we've now run all day Friday and then I have to sit my six foot self in a car for four hours down or five hours. I can't remember how long you're lucky. Yeah. Right. Right. Down to Portland. And then we have a tryout first thing the next morning in Portland. And that was a real tryout. And how I knew that is um, they had the big dog coaches from 
like big women's basketball were there and I recognized them too. Right. So I knew, oh, the Tennessee yeah. coach is here. Okay, I see these coaches here. Yeah. Um, this and is they the were real actually, <laughs> Yes. And I actually saw like there were WNBA players there. I got to meet some of them. <clears throat> that was a really powerful tryout. But um, about halfway through the day at lunch, my body was like, yeah, we're done. We're done. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we're done. As much as I love basketball, I'm 28 and I'm exhausted at this point. Yeah. And so at lunch, I really thought about quitting. I thought about, man, maybe I just walk out. Nobody will notice. I'm just going to yeah. leave the gym. But I didn't. This thing inside me said, you know what, Aaron, you have worked way too hard to get here. You need to finish the day. So I yeah. did. I finished the day and I was laid out on the court at the end after the last <laughs> bell. And suddenly there's a, a camera over my face and there's a voice and this man says, uh, are you Aaron Jones? I said, yes. Why? <laughs> this is NBA Live. I said, NBA Live? Why? <laughs> We'd like to do an interview with you. Why? And I, I mean, I'm tired. I'm right, so exhausted. exhausted. I, just, <laughs> I just want to lay there for a while. Well, it turns out I was the oldest woman with the most children at tryouts. And so they wanted to do an interview with me for being the oldest woman with the most children. So I do the interview. I I never watched it. Like I didn't want to see yeah. it. I knew yeah. I was a hot mess. There's no evidence of that video anywhere. We've tried looking for it. I, we can't find oh, it anywhere. Okay. But they may never have aired it. I don't know. But I finished the interview, and there's this really small white lady with gray hair waiting for me after the interview. And she introduces herself, and she said, "Aaron, I played on the very first women's Olympic team for the United States, and I've been watching you all day." I said. Uh, watching me. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not pretty. <laughs> and she said, no, there's a way that you carried yourself all day. She said, you walked in and I watched you talk to all the young players and make sure they knew where they were going. She said, I watched you at lunch, consider quitting. She said, I saw you. I, I could just, I could read your mind as you sat at lunch trying to decide if you were going to finish. And I watched you find that extra something in yourself to finish out the day. She said it was impressive because I watched you take screens for people to make sure that your teammates looked good. She said, you were not worried about how you looked. You were worried about setting your, your teammates up to look really good. And I watched that. I watched you. She said, you're a leader. She said, I'm taking a group of 10 American women to play against the Mexican Olympic team this summer. Would you be our player captain? Well, I wouldn't get a chance to go that summer, but I would get to go on my 30th birthday. I got to play against the Mexican Olympic team for the first time on my birthday at 30 wow. years old okay, in Mexico awesome. City. That it is pretty awesome. <laughs> it, was, it was the most amazing. And what she didn't know when she asked me to come is that I also speak Spanish. So my degree in college was English, French, and Spanish. And so I not only was the player captain, I was the player captain translator for our team. And because I could speak Spanish on my birthday, they let me share my story at halftime in Spanish with the whole auditorium. Well, it was like an outdoor stadium. So there about 5,000 people there. And I got to share my story in Spanish and people stood up and cheered and then sang happy birthday to me in Spanish. It was the most, like the best birthday. I mean, That's it's just a hard like, one to top. <laughs> there's no way. Yeah. There's no way to explain how that felt. And when the game was over, even though we'd lost the game, and by the way, we never got to practice together, the American team. So the wow, Mexican so national team. Went. <laughs> yeah. 
And and Mexico City is really high elevation too. Right. And so, you know, not only had we not practiced together, we got there and had to just play at high elevation. I mean, it just was insane. Uh, yeah. I, high elevation like the next day. Go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, but what was really awesome, number one, their star player was six foot seven. I had to guard her. I held her to four points and I had 12. Nice. So being 30 years old, only six feet tall, holding their star player to was just, I mean, it was literally like the best day of my life at that point. Yeah. And when the game was over, about a hundred little kids lined up on the sidelines just to shake my hand and have me sign their t-shirts and their socks and their shoes. And um, they all wanted to say thank you for coming all the way from America to share your story. Yeah. And it was just, it was really beautiful for a number of reasons. Number one, being 30 and being able to play at that level yes, was pretty incredible. Number two, just being able to stretch myself and speak Spanish in front of a group that large yeah. um, was also pretty incredible. But three, it was my reminder that as much as I love basketball, I love young people even more. I love yep. teaching even more. And it was a reminder to me that I may not end up being a professional basketball player, but I can still use basketball to be around students. And I would go back into the classroom that next year. But it also opened a door at the end of that summer. I would get a call from my cousin on my dad's side. Now, my my mom and dad, my adoptive parents are both from northern Minnesota. My dad's side of the family accepted me completely as their niece, yeah. cousin. My mom's side was not so accepting, yeah. even though my cousin did. And my my uncle and aunt... And then my mom's sister accepted me. My grandparents were not so welcoming. Yeah. And my cousin on my dad's side, who is also a basketball coach and a player, we all, it's kind of interesting because we are all six feet taller, taller. We're <laughs> all basketball players. We're all teachers. We all sing. So oh, how fun. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. It's a really kind of crazy story. Yeah. Um, but he was coaching a basketball camp right before school started. So right after I got back from Mexico, like three weeks later, he said, I need you to come and coach with me. My girls need to hear your story. They absolutely need to hear your story. And he had a black adopted kid that he knew was coming to camp. And he said, she for sure needs Need to meet to you. Your story. <laughs> yeah. Would you come here? And I remember right away saying, I will only come if you arrange for me to meet with my mom's mom. So he's my dad's yeah, nephew. Yeah. Yeah. My mom's mom. And I knew that she lived in the same small town. And he said, are you sure? I said, I'm positive. I need to meet her. Yeah. And I would fly to Northern Minnesota, coach camp with him, and he would drop me off at her retirement home. My little grandma, four foot 11, would meet me at her door. And she had a shoebox in her hands. And she took me into her apartment and sat me on the couch and began to take things out of the shoebox while crying. And it turns out my mom all these years had been sending her my school pictures. So even though we had no contact with her, um, things were not good with them. She had been sending her mother my school pictures. And so my grandma had every school picture, every certificate, every newspaper clipping in the shoebox. She was 86 years old. And she said, Erin, do you know you were the favorite grandchild out of all? And she had a lot of grandbabies. She said, but we just didn't know how to tell you because you're, and she used the N word yeah, with the hard R. Ugh. 
And it was like being punched in the gut. Yeah. And I said, Grandma, you can't. That is not a word you can use. She said, well, I, I don't know what to call you. And I said, how about Aaron? And then she apologized. She said, you know, your grandfather went to his grave and he never got to tell you how much he loved you. Can you ever forgive us? And I said, Grandma, I didn't come out here to coach a basketball camp. I came out here hoping to forgive you. And so, yes, I forgive you. And that would really begin the work of racial equity that I do today is that conversation with my grandma when I realized she actually didn't hate me. She came from a generation of people who were told to not talk about race. And yet they had really clear messages that they had received about race that had caused us to not have relationship. And um, I did forgive her. And she died three months later. And I think about what if I had not said yes to the WNBA tryouts? Right. You what if I had not said yes things. to Mexico? Yeah. All those all things. of that. And so I, you know, I often tell people, man, you just never know. Do the hard thing because it may not get you where you thought you were supposed to go, but it will always get you someplace that will make your life bigger and better than you imagined. And that is really just one of so many stories of that kind of thing. You know, running for office is the same. Really hard thing, lost by 1%. And it opened the door for me to do amazing things that I never could have imagined before. But this was the beginning of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a, that is, thank you for that story. That's amazing. And I, I love that, that interconnectedness that when you slow down and pay attention to what's happened in your life, you can see that tryouts to grandmother. You know, yeah. that it, it becomes so clear. Like if I, the, if I had said no to that one thing, yeah, you know, and, and like, that's, that's one of my things now, you know, anytime someone calls, wants to meet with me, wants to reach out to me, I just say yes, because yeah. I never know. I always am able to connect with them, give them a yeah. resource, share an idea, something that will yeah. carry forward because I've seen so many of those things like come not necessarily come back, but like pass by again in like yep. a, oh, I made this connection and that went over there. Check that yes, out. You know, yeah. That that interweaving of that that power of message and connection, it just makes me so excited. Yeah. It makes yeah, me I so agree. excited. I agree. So is the son who just graduated the one who also just got engaged? No, those are two different children. So the youngest one, the our youngest son is the one who just earned his master's in fine arts from USC. It's the highest degree that you can get right now in video game design in the world. Can't get a PhD yet. So a master's in fine arts will allow him to teach if he wants to be a teacher, a professor at a university. But he just he's on the autism spectrum. He's a black man who's 6'4", 300 pounds. And he just earned his MFA last week at USC. Just amazing. Pretty incredible. And on the way home, on the way, so Friday, our youngest one earned his MFA. Saturday, literally while I was on the plane, the older son proposed to his girlfriend and she said yes. Pretty amazing weekend. But, and then I got home to the news in Buffalo. So it was 
it was this roller coaster weekend. Completely so, disconnected roller coaster. Yeah. You know, yeah, you, you, yeah. you thought you were going off the fun roller coaster and then it was yes. the screaming roller coaster. This yes. is not fun anymore. Yes. Yep. Not fun anymore. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. Talk about a brutal, brutal weekend on so many, so many levels. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so I always love asking people about their superpower because oftentimes when I ask people this, they're kind of like, "I'm not a, I'm not a Marvel fan," and I'm like, "That's that's not what I'm talking about." Not what you're asking, yeah, yeah. You know, I am a Marvel fan, though, just so you know. Yeah, and, and I, I'm a Marvel are, fan are... too, but it's like you know, you don't have to wear a costume to have a superpower. Nope. Although, so people on the podcast can't see this, but I'm going to show you. So at Christmas this year, one of my friends sent me a message and said, oh my gosh, my son. So my friend is white. Her son is, her, her husband is black. They have two biracial children. Yeah. And her son went to the store with dad to get a present for his little sister. But he found this character and <laughs> said, saw her in, saw her at the toy store and said, oh my gosh, Miss Erin is a superhero. And we need to buy her this gift. And for those of you that are just listening, um, it is uh, Bell Bottom from the new Rise of Gru film that will be coming out in July. But she is literally a superhero <laughs> with an Afro like mine. And this child is five years old. Yep. And he's been watching me online for the last two years. And he told his mom, there is Miss Erin. And so I, this is always next to my computer and it's my reminder that I'm a superhero for little children. And, you know, and my, I've always, I've said for many years, my superpower is seeing brilliance and beauty in children. Um, Give me five minutes with a child and I will tell you something that they're brilliant at. And it's why I think I was always a great teacher is even the children who, especially the children who felt like they had nothing to offer the world. I could always find something beautiful about them. The children that were getting in trouble all the time, I could always find something brilliant. And they never got in trouble in my class because I could speak that brilliance into them. Yeah. And so they would always show up in my class in a different way than they did for other teachers because they knew I could really see them. And and that you did, you know, like yeah. it's just there's so much to that being able to, I talk about a lot in what I, it's like holding, it's holding space. It's like holding yeah. space for what can be yeah. and really acknowledging that and seeing what's really in front of you, not what yeah. someone tells you, or even sometimes that outward expression of what they, they, they want to be Yeah, and seeing, seeing the kindness, seeing the intelligence, seeing the empathy, you know, all the things that kids are so good at and yeah. want to pretend they're not. Yeah. Yeah. So when I asked you what your favorite quote was, you just put in our deepest fear. Yeah, I'm going to actually read you this poem. I have it. I have it memorized, but I, I want to make sure just because I'm so tired today. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Um, and yeah. As we're recording this, just for people who are, you're going to hear this on a different day. Um, yeah. You know, we've just learned of the the Texas school shooting and as an educator who spent all day in the classroom today it's just feeling a certain kind of way so i want to read the my favorite quote which i often will quote when i do assemblies i typically know it by heart but i'm gonna read it from my notes today and this is 
it was written by Marianne Williamson. It was made famous not by Marianne Williamson, but by a number of different people who read it um, out loud. It's in the Coach Carter movie. It's in the um, Keela and the Bee movie. Um, other people have read it and made it famous, but it is written by Marianne Williamson. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as the children do. We are born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. It's beautiful. I've heard it before and I can't hear it enough times. And I 100% believe that. And that's, I think, what, you, what you're good at and what people, people keep, have been telling you for a long time. You know, being willing to, like we were talking about, sometimes just showing up is enough. You know, yeah. but being that person who can show up and let other people shine and not have to, not have to dim it, yeah. just be and 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 admire it and see it and recognize it for what it is, not trying to be anything more than just you. Yeah, I try to. I think we can't ask children to do that if we're not willing to do that as the adults. So exactly, you know, I was just I was at a conference for students of color this morning and. I was not speaking. It just was a conference that was local. So I show up um, yeah. as a local yeah. woman of color. I showed up and I was telling some young people and I wear my hair natural and I stand yeah. tall and I wear big jewelry yeah. because it's who I am. And if I can't stand in my fullness, how can I expect you to think it's okay? And so as a leader, I feel an obligation to stand in my fullness, to show up in my fullness wherever I go. And that means at times showing my full emotion too, when I'm not happy, when things are emotional, I've gotten to the place now where, and if I really want to cry. So last Monday after the Buffalo shooting, I had to host a class on Monday night and I'd been teaching all day. So yeah. I'm already exhausted. Um, and it was my classroom. So I teach an online class every Monday night about equity and I opened the call and said, I have nothing to teach you all. I'm just heartbroken right now. And I just began to cry. And what the most amazing thing happened, I have a transgender black man who has been basically ousted from his family, who is in college and graduate school in Atlanta right now, away from his home, but who joins us online every Monday. Yeah who said, hey, Aaron, can I take over class today for you? I can't do much for you, but this I can do. I'd love to take over class. And it was so beautiful to watch this young person who's struggling so much in his life say when he saw me, because he knows I've given up for him. Right. Um, I the, the week after I met him, his first week in class, it just, I don't even know how he found our class actually uh, divinely because <laughs> yeah. I don't publish about the class, but somehow yeah. he find, found us online. Literally the, the week, the Monday after the Friday, he showed up in my Friday class for the first time. I happened to be in Atlanta and I told him in our first class on that Friday, I said, I'm going to be in Atlanta on Monday and I'm taking you out for dinner. 
I'm going to play mom for a night. And I just want to love on you the way that I would want a parent to love on me if I were alone. And that young person showed up for me last Monday. But I really believe as leaders, sometimes we try to pretend that we have it all together. We try to pretend like things are okay. And I think what that does to young people is make them feel like they have to have it together all the time. And so they contort themselves to try and that is actually not healthy. And so when I, what I've learned over the pandemic is just to be fully me wherever I am. And if I'm really sad, I cry and I don't try to hold it back and I just let it go. And I think that gives other people permission to be fully whoever they are and whatever they're feeling. Yeah. We're on the same journey on that boat. Very much, very much have stepped into that in my own life of, of recognizing that I need to simply own where I am, wherever I am and to not, and to not pretend that it doesn't do anybody any good, you know, and that sometimes it's okay, just like you did to let somebody else take the lead because you're not there. And sometimes it just takes a few moments of sharing where you're at just to reset. You just to say, this is where I'm at right now, because if we can't do that, we're not going to get anywhere. And it was cool because by the end of class, we were all laughing. It's really beautiful. And I knew that I needed to be with that group. So I could have canceled class that night, but I knew I loved this group of people. And I knew if I could just show up again, back to just showing up, if I could Mm -hmm. just show up, (laughs) they would feed my soul. And they absolutely fed my soul. And I walked out of that class laughing and being reminded of why I do the work I do every day. Yeah. Wow. That is, that's, I love it. That's amazing. And I love how things like that work out. You know, love it when you can find the right place to be when you need it. Yeah. So I want to give you a few minutes to talk about the work you've been doing recently with your book. Um, says you want to write another one. I'd love to hear a little bit about that, (laughs) but you know, I feel like you're one of, you know, of all the voices I've heard especially in the last two years with everything that's happened. Yours is one of the voices that I respect the most. I feel that you are transparent and honest, but you come from a mission of peace. You come from a mission of healing that this is that your goal is both of those things. And I just want to give a minute for you to talk about, you know, what you're doing right now and what people, where people can find you and um, what they might be able to learn from you. Cause I know I've learned a lot just watching and reading. Mm, Thank you. So I wrote a book called bridges to heal us um, really as a response to watching my world blow up after George Floyd. I, I mean, obviously the nation had a reckoning after George Floyd, but my own personal community, our church, what that was, fairly diverse by standards of any any non-denominational church. Our church was over 30% people of color. We'd been part of that church community for 25 years. I watched it just blow up. I watched people react to George Floyd's murder in ways that were not loving, were not compassionate. I watched people have this lack of compassion for how black and brown people were responding to George Floyd's murder. I watched people talk about Black Lives Matter in ways that were just gross. And I watched some people in my own family, not my not my immediate family, but my extended family react in ways that didn't make sense to me. And, you know, I 
I became a person of faith in college. And one of the prayers that I prayed at 19 years old was, God, let me use every painful thing that happens to me in my life. Let me use those to be healing, to bring healing to other people. So use every everything, every hard thing that I've experienced, every painful thing. And I knew by January that I had to do something significant in 2021. And it was February that a friend reached out to me and said, she'd met this young man who was helping people write books. And she really thought that I needed to write a book. And she thought that I needed to hire him to help me write this book. And I got on a call with this young man the next day. And, and I knew I needed to write. He was a young black man. He talked like my youngest son. And I just knew I needed to write this book. And I'm a writer by trade. My degree is in literature and I was an English teacher and I love writing in snippets. So I love using Facebook and, and LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram to write about the short, short blurbs. Right. Yeah. But I had, and I've written chapters in other books. So I've been part of five or six other books that educators have written, but I'd never written anything on my own. And I remember after my first meeting with Andre knowing yeah, this is the time. And Andre helps me by just getting me organized. So I did all the writing on my own. He just helped me outline and, and put me, I need a coach because I'm a basketball player. I need yep. somebody to just coach me and, and keep me on track. I, I didn't yep. need anyone to do the work for me, but I did right. need someone to help me just guide yeah. my steps. And so he said, we're going to do this in three months. And I started in March of 2021. I was done by June of 2021. The book was published July 29th on my wedding anniversary. Nice. We were in Mexico actually when the book went live on Amazon. And so you can get the book on Amazon. I know a lot, a lot of people, well, there are some people that don't love Amazon, but here's what I'll tell you. My coach advocated for me to get 70% of the royalties, which is better than most bookstores give you. Yeah. And so please buy it on Amazon. It's called Bridges to Heal Us stories and strategies for racial healing bridges to heal us and there is a a book if you buy the book and reach out to me on any social media i'm on twitter at aaron jones in 2016 i'm on instagram at aaron in 2016 i'm on facebook aaron jones 2016 by the way that's when i ran for office if you reach out to me i actually am a nerdy teacher and i wrote a list of study guide questions. So if you want a study guide as you're going through or you want to do a book club, I have a general study guide for people who are not educators. And then I have one that is specifically for K-12 educators. And I will send that to you for free. I also, for any education leaders out there, and that is teacher leaders or building leaders or district leaders, I also wrote a companion workbook that comes with a number of graphs and charts and activities to do in your school building to really use the book as a way to move forward in school improvement. So yeah, and that was a labor of love. Um, I don't promote the book, so I don't have a, a publicist or I believe that the book will sell itself and it does. Wherever I go, the book sells itself and I'm not trying to get rich with it. I'm really just trying to be part of the healing of our nation. Yeah. Well, and it's nice to be able to put your words in other people's hands when you can't be there because it just keeps yeah. carrying on for you. That's really yeah. amazing. Yeah. Well, Erin, that is all I had for tonight. I cannot say thank you enough times. I think I'm an even bigger fan of yours now than I was before. Oh, 
Thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. And I, you know, in such a heavy day, yeah. it was good to be able to tell some good stories and even some hard stories, but just to see where I've come. And it's yeah. just my reminder in this day when it, it feels a bit, it felt a bit hopeless to think, yeah. you know, there are other times in my life where I felt hopeless too. And here's where I am. Being here has reminded me that I just need to keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's kind of like that lunch break where I thought about quitting and then I reminded myself I've worked too hard to get here. That's today. I've worked too hard to get here. I need to just keep getting up and going back at it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent. Wow. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Good Life Stories. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit our website at goodlifestories.com for more show notes and additional episodes. Please subscribe and consider rating and reviewing the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to help others connect to us. Who do you know with a good life story? I would love to hear from you. Good Life Stories, creating connection one story at a time.